If you're new to Crosspoint, we're reading across the Bible together in a selection of readings arranged in a book called The Story, which gives you a chronological reading through the Bible. The only thing it adds are little transitions when it moves across material quickly, when it skips certain sections. It tells you what's happening next, and it shows God writing a story of salvation across thousands of years and countless failures by the people he was trying to save. They tell you when you're teaching the Bible, one of the first things I was taught was if you're not particularly prepared or you don't think it's going to go that well or you don't think you have a really good grasp on the subject, they say don't tell your audience, they'll find out soon enough. Which is why I'm going to disregard that advice and tell you that in the first service, I didn't feel like it went particularly well from my side. And I've just been praying about that and asking myself and the Lord what exactly went wrong, if in fact something did, I don't know. I think at least part of it is how unrelentingly dark the book of Judges is. It was heavy. There wasn't much relief There is no relief in the book of Judges. If you read in the story this week, they gave you some of the highlights and they introduced you to these failed, flawed heroes, these rescuers. Samson, of course, is most legendary for his strength, but he ends his life blinded and chained. And his last act of service and salvation to Israel is to take a whole bunch of Israel's enemies with him as he kills himself. Not much hope there. Gideon is famous for putting out the fleece to ask for God's will. And if you read that carefully, even that shows that he is a cowardly man. He is afraid. The first time Gideon is spoken to, it's ironic. He's hiding from the enemy and someone comes to him and calls him a mighty man of valor. And he's just the opposite. Like one of my old coaches used to call me stud when I missed a tackle. The book of Judges is unrelentingly dark. The reason is in the last thing it tells you. Would you look in your Bible, if you have your Bible with you, if not, you can find one in the seats near you, and I want you to read the last verse of Judges so you understand the problem. I'm at the very end of the book of Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua. Then the book of Judges, last chapter, last verse. It summarizes these hundreds of years of Israel's history by saying this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right. What's it say? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That sound familiar? Does that sound like us? The only moral absolute, it seems, left in our culture is as long as nobody else is hurt, you do what you want. It's your body, it's your mind, it's your money. You do what you want. The book of Judges is a book-long warning, 21 chapters worth of warning of what society becomes 
when they don't have any regard for what God wants and what God has said, and instead they do what they want individually. It's unrelentingly dark. The scriptures we read, in fact, moved over the worst parts. The last few chapters of the book of Judges shows a nation in total decay if, in fact, it were turned into a movie, and I'm not sure why it hasn't been. It is gripping reading. It's just absolutely astonishing what they got themselves into, the kind of people that God used to get them out of it as they went through a cycle of sin and suffering that I'm going to explain to you. But if you were going to make that into a movie, you'd have to shoot it carefully to avoid an R rating or NC-17 or worse. It's absolute chaos and destruction at the end. At the end of the book of Judges, before Samuel arises, and we'll start learning about him next week, the priesthood is for sale. And Levites are hiring themselves out to be the personal priest, the personal pastor, if you will, in our days. And whatever idolatry wants to rule in that house, that's what the priest is now doing. One Levite is portrayed as having a concubine, a common law wife, and he has so, dis, so, little, dis, so little regard for her, he pushes her into a murderous, sexually violent mob. She's abused all night. He finds her dead the next morning. Callously tells her to get up. She can't. She's abused to the point of death, and the book of Judges at the end tells you what he did. He went home and cut her into 12 pieces and mailed the, corp, mailed the parts of her body around the tribes. You ask yourself, why is this stuff in the Bible? I see some of you haven't read that portion because your eyes got as big as pie plates just now. <laughs> some of you are frantically looking in the Bible to make sure I'm not making stuff up. It's here. And the second chapter of Judges tells you why. The second chapter of Judges gives you a preview of what's coming, and then it just unfolds the historical events as people ride a chaotic cycle of sin that they think is going to lead them into greater freedom, into greater blessing, into greater prosperity, because that is the allure, the allure and promise of sin every single time. Let's read about it together. Judges chapter 2 begins with this ominous note. It says, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And this is the root of the problem that Judges chronicles. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Joshua is dead. And the partial obedience and the partial fear that had started to take root in, the heart, in their hearts, which we looked at last week, is now in full bloom. And after Joshua's generation died, there arose another generation after them. This is astonishing. That new generation did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Wow. They didn't know about the Red Sea, or if they knew about it, it was a distant relic from another time. They didn't know how God had stopped the Jordan River to allow them to cross in peace with some 15 miles of dry land to walk through to live in the land that they now enjoyed. In one generation, they forgot God. I think those are the days we're living in. I think those are the days that people are always living in. We're one generation always away from forgetting God. 
And this begins the cycle. The first thing that judges will show you is people who are self-satisfied. They're not God-satisfied. They're not God-trusting. They're self-satisfied. And if I'm being very honest with you, and I'm maybe perhaps going to be more personal than normal today, if I'm really honest with you, and I talk to you as a Christian who has been saved by Jesus and is trying to follow Jesus, my struggle is just like yours. It is a continual battle between me trusting me and me trusting Jesus. And ironically, the very things that he does to bless me and to show me love and faithfulness, those are the very things that I fear when they're taken from me and my heart is drawn to instead of him. I become self-satisfied. You've heard me say it before. I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. (laughs) That's just an honest expression of the human condition. Every single thing in my life My first inclination, my impulse is to think, how does this affect me? Yeah, I have a wife. Yeah, I have kids. Yeah, I'm a pastor. Yeah, I'm a friend. I have parents. But first, what about me? And if you live there, you'll never follow Jesus with your whole heart. The process of discipleship is moving away from self-satisfaction into faithfully following the Lord. Because when you're satisfied with yourself, you'll soon forget God. And that's what Judges shows you here in chapter 2. Moses had warned this, had warned them about this. Before they even went into the land, this is what Moses told them. And listen, this is a warning, this is a sermon, if you will, given long ago by a people who were different than we are, but the spiritual dynamics are just as real this morning as they were when Moses said this. Moses told Israel before they crossed into the promised land, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt." out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Everything God did, Moses is saying, in doing that, even the hard times were designed to teach you to trust him. Everything that God is doing in your life, the things that you enjoy, that you find pleasurable and that you find a blessing, the things that are difficult and that test you, it's all designed to draw you back to him. He wants to walk in what one of our group leaders calls the the garden perspective. The original relationship was perfect and trusting and loving and open and vulnerable, and that's what God wants with you today. And every single thing in your life is designed to draw you toward him in that way. But Moses is saying to Israel, in that day, you have a great temptation just ahead of you. When he takes you into that land and you've built your house and you've harvested your fields and your kids are sitting happily around in peace and you have no fear of drought, and you have no fear of enemies because God has subdued all of them for you. And when everything is right in your life, be careful then that you not forget your God. Look at the end. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, 
My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. That is the most human of all reactions. You get the job, you get the grade, you get the entrance into the right college. You get the boyfriend, you get the girlfriend, you get the thing. You get the brass ring that you were chasing. And the natural inclination of the human heart, which is self-satisfied, is to say, boy, didn't I do good? Didn't she look good on my arm? Got a title now. Got business cards. Got a cell phone. Got a company-provided cell phone. And those are all blessings. Those are all good things that God has lavished into your life. The warning from Moses is make sure in those moments that you don't forget your God. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. If you're self-satisfied, if you're happy with your achievements, happy is good, proud is not. Because your very next breath depends on God. Your success, your intelligence, your power, your influence, your wisdom that is leading you through the world, perhaps with the success that others envy, it all comes from the Lord. It could all be over just like that. As a pastor, I have a, perhaps a privileged insight into that, and I've seen incredibly strong, smart people reduced in a moment with a brain injury to people who need constant care. One time when my wife was so sick in Mexico, I walked three doors down the hall and visited a doctor who was fighting for his life who had seen my wife two weeks earlier. That's the way life turns. When you have success, Moses is saying, make sure then that you don't forget God when your heart is lifted up. On the contrary, use those blessings, use his provision to remind yourself that God is with you and his blessing is part of his relationship with you. What I'm trying to tell you is that blessings can be your biggest test. Candidly, I've seen more Christians ruined and drawn away from Christ by great blessings than great adversity. Every once in a while, people will have so much adversity, so much suffering in their life that their hope is crushed and they don't follow God after more, but that is incredibly rare. What I've seen instead, and I wouldn't mention their name and embarrass them, is one particular family in our church has been through it in the 10 years I've been here. And it's almost become a family joke of what next? Is it locusts? You know, what could possibly happen next? Absurd, statistically improbable, almost impossible things continue to happen to them. And what we've seen in all of that time is a spirit grows sweeter and a faith grows stronger. So many times, I'll see a good standard issue believer who is following Jesus with his whole heart, and finally, he comes into money. Finally, good things start happening in his life, and in a moment, his heart is lifted up, his eyes are drawn towards self, and he walks away from the Lord. Blessings can be your biggest test, and the beginning of the chaotic cycle of judges is self-confidence, self-reliance. That leads to sin. Judges 2, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. If that strange word is unfamiliar to you, Baal was the most prominent of the Canaanite deities. He was a farm god. He ruled over the skies. He brought 
water to that dry land. In other words, they looked to Baal for their daily sustenance and their provision. They built idols for him and for his female counterpart who was named Ashtoreth. Their cult, their worship was a brutal, bloody, deadly thing. It involved sacred prostitution where both men and women would offer themselves as conduits to the gods and sleep with other people, have sex with other people for money. That was the crass religion of Baal. And of all the gods, of all the false idols, that's who Israel's being drawn to. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. In one generation, we're one generation away. Always. We're on the edge of apostasy and forgetting God from one generation to the next. Moses had pleaded and instructed Israel, when you enter into the land, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you teach your children to do the same. You're diligent with them. Tell them when you're walking along the road. Tell them when you get up. Tell them when you go to bed. Tell them constantly to love the Lord. In one generation, all of that has been forgotten. The blessings that God has given rather than make people grateful have drawn their hearts away from them. Now they are imitating the nations around them. And that is so easy with the perspective of Scripture and history to look at these people and say, how stupid can you possibly be? But the lure is imitation. The lure is to be like the people around you. They were a little sliver of a nation surrounded by untold millions of people who lived in their own way and who invited Israel with all kinds of different pressure to do the same thing. The trouble is that sin is imitating the world instead of following God. Always. Sin always starts with compromise and imitation and ends up, as we're going to see, with utter destruction. And my simple bottom line instruction from the Bible is don't go with the crowd because the crowd isn't following Jesus. If you're with a great company of people all headed the same direction, it is almost certain in this world that you're going the wrong way. You say, man, that sounds awfully narrow. Well, listen to Jesus. In fact, we're going to read the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Did you read this with me? This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He's speaking both to disciples and listeners. He's speaking to people who were already following him and people who were considering whether they should. And this is what he said. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You understand what Jesus is saying here? It's a word picture. He says there's two paths. One has a wide open gate. It's easily found and it's easy to walk. Many people are on it. Here's the only drawback to that particular road. The gate is wide, the way is easy, but where does it lead? Destruction. That's Jesus. 
See, I'm in real trouble. There's a real danger for me. If, the heart of, if, if my heart of hearts, apart from following and trusting God, craves the acceptance of other people, is reluctant to be different, is reluctant to stand out, to go against the grain, to swim against the current, if I am drawn to go with the way that it is easy, Jesus is telling me in plain language, I'll have a lot of company straight on the way to hell. What's the other choice? There's a narrow gate. And the way is hard that leads to life. He didn't mean that it's hard to earn. He's going to go on to explain that he gives salvation as a free gift. It's not that it's hard to earn. It's hard to walk with him through all of that difficulty. It's hard to walk against the crowd. It's hard to walk with very few companions and with very few examples. And that's exactly what Israel is doing here. Later, the Apostle John would tell his readers in the first century, some of the first Christians, do not love the world or anything that is in the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It isn't religious rules. It isn't religiosity and ritual. It all boils down to a matter of love and trust. Are you going to love and trust God enough to do as he says and walk in a narrow, difficult way? Or are you going to trust your own way only to discover, as Jesus warned you, that it ultimately leads to your destruction? There's been self-complacency. There's been self-satisfaction. That has led them into sin. And the cycle of Judges, there's 21 chapters of the same thing. Self-satisfaction leads to sin and imitation and compromise and joining the crowd, and that always leads to suffering. Every single time. Listen to Judges explain it. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn them, they were in terrible distress. It would be a terrible thing to march out to war expecting God's help and finding that instead he was against you. Now, why is he against them? He's against them because he wants them back. God speaks against sin and punishes sin and lets the consequences of sin flow into my life because he wants me back. He wants me to find that narrow path. He ultimately wants to, me to trust his son, Jesus, the Savior. And if I won't, if I won't get off this cycle, it will always continue. And that is the nature of sin. It promises you freedom and leads you straight into slavery. See, the world has completely twisted and religion has completely twisted what the Bible says. The world says, do whatever you want. Just don't hurt anybody else. Or maybe only if they deserve it. But you do what you want. You're an American. It's your birthright to do as you please. It's a free country. Do what you think is best and enjoy your life. And people will tell you in doing that, they think they will have freedom. And what happens instead is that sin gives you in the beginning much pleasure and little cost. And if you continue down that path, it takes more and more from you and gives less and less back until finally it takes everything you have and gives you nothing in return. 
That is the picture of suffering that is depicted here in the book of Judges. The New Testament will explain it later like this. The wages of sin is death. It's not just suffering. It ultimately leads on to death. But here's the good news. Here's the ray of light piercing into the darkness of this brutally honest book. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus offers free entrance into that narrow way, and he bids you to follow him through difficulty, knowing that your own good behavior cannot possibly save you, that he is going to take care of that himself. And that's what breaks the cycle in Judges, as often as it is repeated. The people suffer sometimes for decades until God sends a savior. He sends a judge to rescue them. It says in Judges 2.16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. They cry out sometimes for decades under the yoke of this oppression that they thought was going to be freedom. And God has moved to compassion and he sends them a rescuer. He sends them a judge. But the cycle goes on. And that's one of the warnings of the book of Judges. This cycle is always the same. Self-reliance will always lead you straight into sin. Sin will always lead you straight into suffering. And you will suffer there until you call out for the Savior. The cycle never stops. It never goes any differently. Someone has quoted Einstein, the quote's almost too good to be true, as saying that insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. The book of Judges grinds on for 21 chapters with different kinds of oppression, different kinds of slavery, different kind of flawed rescuers to show the reader that the cycle is always the same and you can't get off of it until you trust the Savior, until you respond to what God is doing. Look, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And you say, good, they get it, and we're barely in chapter 2. finally some relief in this tension and gloom and destruction. No. Look, listen to how emotional, listen to how painful this language is. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. That word surprise you in the Bible? It's a little rough, isn't it? Sacred prostitution is at the heart of this false worship. And if you keep reading across the Old Testament, when God's people walk away and disobey and rebel against him in this way, he will speak in the exact terms of a husband who is heartbroken because he has discovered that he is being cheated on. Why such a vulnerable word picture? Why would God speak of himself, the creator of all the universe, in such sad, graphic, heartbroken language? Because that's how deep his love is. It's a human picture, an earthly picture that we can more easily get around, get our minds around. That's how much he loves us. And this is how people are treating him in return. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Why is this, why is judges telling you this so that you'll see this in the early pages of the Bible so that you'll see something that is always true. When God saves, it's all him. 
It's not this human judge. It's certainly not Samson. Samson's a hot mess. Samson's got a woman who is trying to kill him, and he knows it, and he still keeps sleeping next to her and telling her the secrets. Gideon appears to be a great man, but he is ironically mocked as someone who began in cowardice, who asked God to do two different miracles to make sure that it was God that was speaking to him, And God deliberately led Gideon and his little army and reduced them down to barely a small, tiny little group. They went from 32,000 to, do you remember how many? 300. Against an enemy army that is described as locust inhabiting the land. You couldn't count their animals, much less their soldiers. And Gideon faced them with the brilliant military equipment of, do you remember? There was a trumpet and there was a jar with a light in it, right? In other words, there was a trumpet and a flashlight. (laughs) I guarantee you, if you enlist in this nation's army, they are going to give you more than a trumpet and a flashlight. Early on, they're going to teach you to shoot. Not in Gideon's army. Why? Here's why. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Why does this keep coming up? Because that's the struggle of discipleship. This is the point of fear for every Christian in whatever your next step is in following Jesus. Your natural inclination, apart from the grace of God, is to figure it out on your own and do your own thing, especially inspired the many examples you have around you who are not following Jesus or are claiming to but really aren't. And you're one generation away from seeing the kind of madness and godlessness that Judges here describes. What's your next step with Jesus? I don't know, but let me tell you what some of the hard parts are. Some of the hard parts of following Jesus are praying rather than getting busy and working harder. It's so much easier to get busy and to work at it. My wife will sometimes say to me when she sees I'm stressed, which is often, have you prayed about that? Yes, kind of for two minutes until I thought to myself, this isn't doing much, I better get to work. You ever been there? A very sanctified group, nobody agreed with me. You left me hanging out on that one all alone, thanks. (laughs) Giving is a tough one. Cover to cover, the Lord says to his believers in all times, Israel and Christians, give generously, give to me first. He says to a thief in the Ephesians, let the one who stole steal no longer that he may have something to share with someone who has need. That's how important giving is. It's not just working to provide for your own needs. You want to have something you want to earn so that you can give. Tithing is almost unknown in the contemporary American church. Occasional giving, sporadic giving in response to a specific need, a particularly emotional appeal, yes, but giving every time God prospers you, giving generously so that you have to rearrange your priorities, yeah, my accountant doesn't, he doesn't, he thinks that's crazy. And the wisdom of the world beckons 
And Jesus warns, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Why did he call God and money both masters? Because money is always inviting you to come and trust it. That it will satisfy you, that it will take care of you, that it will assure your retirement, that you will enjoy your last days without worrying about anything, that it will provide everything for you. And I can tell you from being in multiple countries, very different cultures, that lure draws every human heart. And I've stood at the deathbed, I've stood in hospice with very wealthy people who would go back and do it all differently because they realize when their money can't save them, if they've given their life to money alone, it has been wasted. Parenting is hard. If God gave you children, you have a sacred trust to raise up a generation who knows the work of God because they saw it in your life first and you're continually reminding them of the story that God is writing in your family. But your kids are always going to be charmed by the crowd because the crowd is big and popular and making videos. And it all looks so fun, and it all looks appealing. Listen, when the compromise and the idolatry started in Israel, nobody thought it was going to lead to the kind of slavery and destruction that it ultimately got them into. Sin never tells you on the front side how much it's going to cost you, how long it's going to keep you, what it's going to take from you. It always promises pleasure, and in return gives you increasing pain until there's nothing but pain left. As a parent, I'm begging my kids and encouraging them and urging them and praying for them that they will live a life that is so filled with love for God that at the end of their life, they'll have no regrets. And if you've been scarred and marked up by sin, show your kids your scars. Show them what it cost them, what it cost you, what it's cost your family, and say, this is the season in my life when I started listening to myself and listening to pleasure, and this is how it ended up for me. That's how I got these scars. Sometimes we hear testimonies where the pre-Jesus stuff is so glamorous and exciting that the guy almost sounds disappointed when he finally found God. Have you heard these testimonies? It's not a biblical testimony. The biblical testimony is God gives life. That's why Paul says at the end, in the middle of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's trusting him. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is self-confidence and boasting that leads to the cycle that you cannot escape without the Savior. The real Savior is Jesus. As you keep reading through the Scripture, you're going to find someone greater than Gideon, someone stronger than Samson. Someone whose heart is completely undivided, who is not lured, who is not discouraged, who is not a temporary Savior, but who is a forever Savior. His name is Jesus. And the invitation from God's Word and from this Jesus follower this morning is that you would trust Him. We're celebrating communion together because we want to remember His death. We want to remember His body and His blood shed for us. Your only hope is to break that cycle and to trust the Savior. This goes on for hundreds of years and 21 chapters of written history. Just make one simple point. If you do what is right in your own eyes because you're satisfied with yourself, it will lead you into sin, which will lead to suffering. And your only way out, the only hope you have is the Savior. I pray that you'll trust him. If you haven't, that you would call out to God in the quietness of your heart and say, God, I get it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin. Please save 
He will. He'll put your feet on that narrow path and he'll lead you straight on to the home he has prepared for you. Could you pray with me, please? Can we bow our head and pray together? Would you say you're self-confident or God-confident? That's really the question. That's at the heart of it. Nothing more, nothing less. And the way you're living your life, you're pursuing your career, you're doing your parenting, you're spending and giving and saving your money, does it show God-confidence or self-confidence? Self-confidence leads straight on to slavery. God-confidence leads straight on to freedom, forgiveness, heaven. If you're not sure of your relationship with God, I invite you, just one person to another. Billy Graham said, one beggar telling another where he can find bread. Cry out to Jesus, say, save me. Forgive me, I'm tired of my own self-reliance. I'm tired of making imitative deals, taking offers that turn out to disappoint me. Save me. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for it. Forgive me. Save me. I'm sorry. Save me. He will. He won't put you on a path of self-improvement. He'll be your Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd work in this congregation. You'd show us our hearts full of fear, full of self-reliance, filled with anger, which is another symptom of not trusting you. And help us, Lord, to, by your grace, escape this cycle by trusting the one true Savior you provided, the one who lived perfectly, was tempted in every way just as we are, lived without sin to give himself a perfect substitute to give us eternal life through his resurrection. Thank you. Draw those who need you and help them trust you right now. And let us, I pray God further that they would let us know what they've done how they've trusted you so that we could celebrate with them, walk along with them, encourage them, read the Bible with them so that they would grow to the full measure of the potential that you have given them in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.